my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's a rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. And good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, September 12th, uh, the day after uh, September 11th of uh, uh, 2018. We have a great uh, guest today, Ludovic Falapu uh, uh, from uh, from uh, London. We're going to be talking about private equity and so forth. And uh, could um, and I, you're one of the world's experts in private equity. So could you tell uh, our audience about a little bit about your background and how you became to be so well known in private equity? Um, yeah, lots of luck and. <laughs> Uh, weird things. Um, so, so I grew up um, on a farm, a uh, small farm in the middle of nowhere in France. Um, always been intrigued by uh, economics and finance. Uh, then I kept on studying, and then one thing after the other. At one point, I was doing my PhD at INSEAD, uh, a business school based in France and Singapore. And then um, I. I had a teacher for one course, a visiting teacher, um, and the course he was teaching was private equity. That teacher was Steve Kaplan from University of Chicago. Yep. And then I had a classmate of mine, uh, Oliver Gottschag, who had worked in private equity. And when Steve Kaplan taught this course, I, I, it was the first time I was hearing about private equity. I found it a bit weird and, and very intriguing. And then... Oliver Gottschalk, my classmate, then came to me and said, look, I have all this data in private equity. Nobody has data in private equity, and this is a hot topic, and, and we should write together a paper on this. And so this is how it started, and I knew nothing, and so Oliver told me uh, the ropes, how it works in practice, and the more I studied it, the more I was intrigued, so I kept on studying and researching it, and I was lucky to have data early on, and this is how I guess I... I ended up in this position because I was one of the first guys to get the data, and then I was one of the first guys also to give to show that a lot of the things that were taken as um, given uh, common beliefs were were more myths than 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 true. Ludo, Ludo, I like your candidness. I like your book, by the way, and uh, people can find out more about you by going to pelaybear.com. Am I correct? That's right. All right. So, but could you? Please t- tell our audience, you know, I would say most 99% of people, even in finance, don't even know what a leverage buyout is. Could you please tell our audience what a leverage buyout is and a target company and limited partners and so forth? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, I find that, so I've been trying to explain that for years, and, and in the book I opted to for a real estate setting because I, I find that it is what people, you know, find most intuitive when we talk about a house or things like that. So um, you can do a leverage buyout of a house, and this is how it would work, and you can do the exact same thing with any company. So um, do you go by ba- Barry? Yeah, I go Barry, yeah. Barry. So Barry, imagine you you know, you, you, you walk in New York City, and there is a building that, that you like, and then it, that is for sale, and then you think, well, but, you know, I could make a combination of, like, 
office rentals out of this and, and, and residential space. And, okay, so I, I, I want to buy this building, but I have no money. Uh, and this building is there for, like, uh, for, for sale for like $100 million. So then what you do is that you, you try to find some people to give you basically half of that, $50 million in cash. And you will ring up like pension funds, most probably. So imagine you call me and I'm a pension fund in France. I'm... I'm collecting the money, the savings from French uh, pensioners, or will be pensioners, and then I'm trying to find investments for this money uh, to get a return in order to pay these pensions uh, when these people retire. And you come to me and you say, look, can you just give me like $50 million and I'll, I'll buy this building? Yeah. So I do that. I give you $50 million. And then the other $50 million, you go to the banks to borrow it. So you tell the banks, look, I'm, I'm buying this building. It's, it's worth $100 million. I would like $50 million loan. So without using your money, so other people's money, um, you're getting this building. You got $50 million from me, a French pension fund, and you got $50 million from uh, the banks. Now, um, you're going to be in charge. Uh, so you are going to be the chair of the board of a company that manages and owns that building. And so you will be appointing the executive team. You'll be, you know, you'll be calling all the shots, um, and you'll be in control of that building with other people's money. And basically, this is how you become uh, a general partner. That's your role. And me, the uh, guy who gave you the cash, who has the equity in 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 this deal, um, I'm the limited partner. And then the banks gave you the the debt to uh, buy the building. So that's, in a nutshell, how it works. And you can do that for anything. So you can say, look, I, I like Toys R Us, and I'm just going to buy Toys R Us. And then you call, you call money from pension funds to give you the equity for it. And then you go to the banks to get the debt for it, and you buy Toys R Us. So when you buy companies in the U.S., you may be able to borrow like 80% of the value of a business uh, and then just call 20% from other people. But by and large, you you don't really put much money of your own in, in that deal. It's like you're buying these huge things with other people's money. It's yeah, it's it's always done with other people's money, Ludo. Am I correct? I mean, the the general partners themselves, whether it be uh, uh, you know the the giant ones like Carlisle or Apollo or you know Sivan or Premier or you know or BC Partners. It's always done. They really don't have that much skin in the, in the game. Am I correct, Ludo? Uh, that, that's right. So they, they, they have it uh, in two ways. So one, they put a bit of their own money in the deal, but we are talking about, so if you buy a building for $100 million, then you would probably put, like, at best, $1 million of your own money. Um, so 99% will be <laughs> the banks and, and other people. Um, the other way they have skin in the game is 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 is, is one where through their compensation. So they get 20% of a profit that will be generated on the building uh, when we sell it. So then um, in this sense, they have skin in the game. It's not like that they, are, they will lose things, it's that they can earn a lot if they, if they generate a lot of cash. So that makes them very focused on generating cash. So the, 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 the one important aspect of these transactions, other than the other people's money and the leverage that is used, is that when you, Barry, is gonna, you're going to buy this building, you are basically on a very tight deadline. Your goal, you have only one goal, is to make as much money as possible. So you will want to sell this building for the highest price possible in three, four years' time from now. Yeah. So that's a characteristic of private equity, which is that there is a sort of emergency there 
to make as much money as possible as quick as possible. And if you make a lot of money selling this building, I have a pension fund from France will make money and you, Barry, will make money because you get 20% of a profit and the banks will be repaid. And what that means is that also because you're going to charge me quite a lot of fees for that, it means that you're going to hire like the best consultants, the best architects, you're going to hire the best lawyers, you're going to buy the best of everything in order to get this building uh, worth as much as possible in four years down the line. Um, and so you, you, it means also that it, it is very different from an other type of companies then because this emergency and the fact that there is such a, a cash focus means that you have a lot of things like politics that are, that are much less present in private equity. So in a normal corporation, you may, people may, executives may think, oh, you know, shall I please that guy or that guy and then I get a promotion or, you know, here is, is like, we don't care, there are three years and then everybody has a, will get a share of the profits when we exit this thing. So everybody's on the same boat. It's non-exante. You have 1%, this person has 2%, etc. And so everybody just is there to, 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 to make this building worth as much as possible. And so sometimes it has some good aspects, like you're going to work very hard to make this building as attractive, as pleasant as possible for the occupiers, uh, because that's the way to make it worth as much as possible. And sometimes there is some negative aspects, which is there are some anecdotes like in New York City where some private equity firms have bought some buildings where there is social housing in them. And apparently it is said that they do things like um, not collecting garbage or cutting the hot water, things like that, to make the people in social housing give up the apartments and go so that these apartments can be then refurbished and sold on the normal market price. Um, so you, the, the fact that particularly so focused on money means that it's basically capitalism on steroids, high leverage, other people's money, and making as much money out of, uh, of an asset as fast as possible and which can lead to good things, but and sometimes lead to bad things. Yeah, and now, Ludo, um, the industry has just um, has grown, and I think in, in around 1980s, Ludo, I think there's maybe 20 leveraged buyout companies in the world at that time, and I think The Economist said there's roughly something like 6,600 worldwide now, and it, this is it's really big, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., and, um, and I think it's getting bigger in the in, in the Far East now. But why has the business uh, grown so much? Because these guys are making so much money. Am I correct, or or is it who's? Yeah. Who? So it is it is believed that they have made a lot of money, uh, and part of it is a bit mythical, and part of it is 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 true. So it it, it it's a bit of a complex uh, uh, topic. So if we focus on on there are some other advantages of private equity, like the fact that the values of the assets are not mark to market, so things are smoother, and so that, you know, there's, there's other side effects that people like with investing in private equity. But about the money making, so yes, what people have seen is that if you look at the growth in earnings or all kinds of case studies in private equity, it looks like there are lots of businesses that have been grown very fast and, and uh, went in the hands of private equity. Now, there are two things to, 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 to do there before one can conclude is one, is one needs to be very careful about inorganic growth. So private equity buys a lot of businesses and then externally finance the acquisition of additional businesses which they merge with the first business. And roll up, so then is that? Just look at, so for example, you buy that building and then you raise some extra money to buy a couple of other buildings in New York City 
and and then when you sell, you say, oh, look, I'm selling everything for like 300 million, and um, so my, the growth in earnings from my first building to when I sold is is huge. Yeah, but you you merged stuff in that you financed externally. So so this is inorganic growth, and there's quite a lot of, of it in private equity. And it's always pretty hard to to have the data on on exactly how much organic growth uh, companies uh, have, and that would be like the right measure. But it seems plausible that private equity does even organically grow companies very well and better than than um, maybe publicly owned companies or family firms, etc. So this is plausible, uh, and there are tons of anecdotes in that direction. Yeah. Now, the problem is, oh, an issue is, is that they also charge huge fees. Yeah. So private equity funds is the, the highest charging funds you can you, you can think of. So I have estimated the, the, the total amount of fees charged by a fund to something like 700 basis points for the average fund. Yeah. So we are way beyond even what a hedge fund would charge or what, uh, of course, what a mutual fund would charge and what Vanguard would charge. So, so uh, they, Ludo, they excuse me. Fees. You said, Ludo, um, repeat that. You said all, all in the... the Average private equity firm is charging 700 basis points, which is roughly 7%. Right. Am I, did I hear that correctly? You're the guy that does the numbers. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't know it was that high. Okay. Is that with the carried interest? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a magnificent number. Um, and, and, and so estimates vary between like 600 and 700 basis points. Uh, we, are, we are quite sure about the number. So the first time when I estimated it, people you know, accused me that I was crazy. And, and, and <laughs> since then, 10 years ago, uh, since then, you know, everybody's confirming that the number is roughly in that ballpark. Um, so, so that's the kind of number we are talking about. Um, and so what, what that means is that even if they generate a lot of money out of the assets they are running, they are taking so much fees that, you know, then the big question is, is there anything left for the pension funds um, who invested in these funds? And there, the answer is, is a bit more mixed. So... It's not a catastrophe, that's for sure. The performance is decent. Depending on the benchmarks you would choose, the time period and things like that, you could end up with like anywhere between the same return as public markets up to 3 4% above public markets per year. So that's the ballpark of their returns when you do the maths correctly, but you can play with the benchmark and a number mm-hmm. of other things. So you would end up between matching public markets up to 4% more. Um, the investors often think that it is a lot more than that. So there are some quotes by some prominent private equity guys saying that we outperform the public market by like uh, 1,000 basis points, so like 10% a year. Um, these usually, um, and a lot of people say, oh, in private equity, like Apollo has like 40% return annually since inception. Yale Endowment has 30% return since inception, these sorts of things. You can hear people saying these sorts of things. Um, These numbers are not correct. These numbers are internal rates of return. They're not really what we would call rates of returns. The money hasn't accumulated over time at the 30% or 40% for the case of Apollo uh, 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 return. So there is also this thing that if you do the maths correctly, the performance is either like the stock market or a bit above. Um, and we can debate as to, you know, which benchmark is more appropriate, how much risk adjustment you need to have. And, and as a function of your opinion there, you can end up with thinking that it's not a very good deal or it's not a, 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 a bad deal, but it's, it's okay. Um, 
but what investors often believe or, 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 or see are numbers that are highly inflated due to the use of internal rates of return and due to the fact that also there are no rules to present track records in private equity, which means that you can just win, window dress quite a bit because there are just no rules. Um, so often people have a feeling that when they receive fundraising prospectuses and the like, they have a feeling that this is just they're going to earn 30% a year uh, investing in private equity. Um, and that has not been the case and very unlikely to be the case. Ludo, right? Of, 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 of growth in private equity is also due a bit to this myth around performance. But again, it has not been bad, but it's just... Okay. Now, Ludo, I have a question for you because this is all goes up. I have I have friends of mine have gone to Ivy League schools, and some people have said Harvard, and Harvard hasn't done that great actually. But then someone else, in particular, said about well, Yale and and David Swenson at Yale, and they're getting these twenty thirty percent rates of return, uh, Ludo. And then when I holy moly in your book, and people, I recommend people getting the book. So uh, we have a PhD in economics t- talking about it. But they're not getting 20 to 30 percent. Yale's not getting 20 to 30 percent uh, rates of return. Ludo, they'd be, have like $6 trillion in their endowment or, or something incredible. Yeah. I mean, you tell me. You do the numbers. Yeah, so w- whenever people, like even recently, there was somebody from Apollo saying like, oh, we raised the largest price equity fund ever because, you know, we have 40 percent returns since inception. So who can beat that? You know, it's like 30 years track record of 40 percent a year. And you're like, that's not possible. Like, just even do the math. Like, you would have, like, the world GDP by now. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot compound things at 40% a year. It just, it just is mathematically, like, physically impossible. You would need a few more planets for that. So um, the, the 30% uh, number is the same thing. 30% is not feasible. If you grow something, if you really earn a rate of return of 30% every year on the money you have invested, your money grows at, at, at an incredible pace. You, you nearly double your capital every two and a half years. It, 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 it's huge. You, you, you would immediately like get yeah, numbers like the six trillion uh, and, uh, out of 100 million investments <laughs> 30 years ago. So, so you, the, the numbers that Yale and others are quoting, of course, they are not made up. These are truly, you know, 30% is, is real. The problem is that what they call 30% return is an internal rate of return. It's not a rate of return. So it's just as if I was telling you, um, I have a cat, and that cat can run at uh, 30 miles per hour. And you think, well, that's amazing. Like a 30 miles per hour running cat, it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. And, and then you would find out that I've just decided to call my cat, my dog, a cat. So that's it. But, so technically, I'm not lying. My cat is running at 30 miles per hour, but it's just that it is a dog, really. So it, and for a dog, it's not that incredible that he runs at 30 miles per hour. So that's, that's a bit the, 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 the thing in a nutshell. So the returns that are reported are internal rates of returns. Um, they have little to do with real rates of returns on capital. And people were not fully aware, but still tons of people were not aware of that. And they keep on making this mistake. And some people play with people making that mistake. Um, and so think that, you know, 30% returns is what Yale has earned in private equity. They haven't. It's their internal rate of return. It's not their rate of return on capital invested. Warren Buffett just earned 20% net of all fees. But he's like not far from the richest guy on the planet. 
So if somebody would have earned, you know, 1.5 times every year what Warren Buffett has earned, I think by now this person would, you know, own the globe. So <laughs> it, 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 it just doesn't, doesn't exist. And yet, when you receive fundraising prospectuses from practically firms, about any one of them on their first page would tell you, oh, we have since inception annualized returns of 30%, 35%, 25%. These numbers are very common in practically. None of them are real. They are real rates of internal rates of return, but these are not what you think they are, which are rates of return. Are you the only guy who's really – now, this information, Ludo, are you one of the only guys who's really questioned this? Because uh, this, on a personal experience, because I was with uh, a, a friend, and they said, well, Yale gets this rates of return. Are you the only one who's kind of cracked the code on this in, in, the, uh, in yeah, the Yeah, on Yale Endowment, I, I, I am, yeah. So nobody <laughs> has, has ever done that. Um, for Yale, I wrote a paper about it like uh, seven years ago. Um, journalists have asked Yale about it. They always refused to, 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 to respond, even though it was like the Financial Times and The Economist calling them and reporting on my findings. And at the time, it was not written, it was an internal rate of return. I just said, look, the number in Yale Endowment report never changes from one year to the other and doesn't exactly add up. So it's got to be an internal rate of return. They don't say so, but it's got to be that. And, and I wrote that, well, we would know if, if they separate buyout from venture capital, that will, for some technical reason, that will reveal that it's an internal rate of return because the buyout return will become normal and the venture capital return of year will become really abnormal, like a really stupid number. If they separate, if they don't report private equity altogether and they separate buyout and venture capital. And then we will know really what Yale has done if they report a so-called money multiple, which is simply how much money did you get back from private equity compared to how much you gave them. And that number was never reported uh, by Yale. So Yale, so they kept on getting pressure from, from, from all kinds of people following my paper. And it may be causal or not, but two years ago, Yale finally separated buyout and venture capital returns in their report, but they kept reporting internal rates of return. And what happened is exactly what I had predicted. Their, the buyout investments from Yen Endowment, yep. which is the, the, a, a very large stake of what they invest in private equity, is between 12 and 15 percent yeah. annual return. So it was 15 the first year they released it. This year it was 12. So here is exactly what I was saying. But if they separate out buyout from venture capital, we will see a much more normal number for buyout. And indeed, the number this year in the annual report was 12% a year for buyout, which is basically what indeed the average buyout firm has returned. And, but in venture capital, they reported 100% return, like 93% exactly. And so people, some journalists wrote like front page stories saying, my God, Yale earned 93% return <laughs> a year in venture capital. And like, that's just not possible. Even like you can do the math. Like imagine doubling your capital every year. Like after 30 years of this, again, like you, you, you need a few planets for that. Okay, so Ludo, I know you, so you're a Frenchman, so uh, uh, my, my question is, um, but private equity and leverage buyouts business, and I'm not familiar, as familiar with the tax code in the UK, but do, don't both these businesses survive off of taxpayers because of massive use of debt? And the favorable treatment of carried interest and so forth. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it's it's almost like a Marx thing, whereas uh, capital is more invaluable than labor. Am I correct that the business has really thrived because of the use of debt? And hasn't that really kind of um, made an additional kind of a problem? Because of, you know, I've been looking in Europe and, and the U.S. that the massive use of 
of, of corporate debt now has almost surpassed their prime. And um, so what are your thoughts on the private equity industry uh, being subsidized by the tax breaks? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that's a very good argument. It, 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 it has been made uh, at the birth of the industry in the 80s already, and it has been an ongoing debate. I think, so to, 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 to go back to the basics, so the governments about everywhere in the world have decided that interest expenses on debt would be tax deductible. Okay. Um, and that's strange because the payment on the debt, uh, 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 on, on the debt, which is that 50 million that, I, that, that the bank gave to buy this building we said earlier, why would this interest payment would be any different from the payment that I, as an equity holder, receive from my dividend? Yeah. So why is it that the debt holder um, uh, interest payments are, are, are tax deductible and what I pay to the equity guy is not tax deductible. So that's not very natural. And what that means is that all the governments are subsidizing the use of debt. And that's like that in any country. And that's very strange. And it's not just strange, it's actually a bit worrying because there has been a number of studies by now, a lot of evidence that most of financial crises happen because of a huge amount of debt that has been built up somewhere. At one point, people cannot repay, and then it, it creates a financial crisis. So we have examples after examples of that. It's, it's, it seems like it's always the over-leveraging that creates the problems. So the, the governments are subsidizing debt, and that's therefore you know, not very smart, apparently. So now there are some initiatives of like capping that. So they say you cannot borrow more than six times your earnings for a company so that you don't go beyond you know, what would be reasonable. So this is in place now. Um, there are ways to go a bit around it, but it's basically in place. Um, and it's not just private equity who benefits from that. It's any corporation benefits from tax deductibility of interest payments. Um, so does that mean that private equity directly, like part of the money they make is due to the taxpayer? It's not clear because when private equity buys a business, um, the seller knows that private equity owner is not going to pay any taxes anymore because they're going to put a lot of leverage on this business. Yeah. And so the seller should make them pay for it. And there is some evidence that, for example, when you take a company out of a public stock exchange and you, you, it's a private equity guy buying it, the premium that they have to pay is a function of how much tax savings they're going to make on the business, which then goes to this a hypothesis support this hypothesis that maybe the seller is actually the one who makes uh, the profits here because the seller say, okay, I know you're a particular guy, you're going to leverage this to the sky, you're not going to pay corporate taxes anymore, so your tax saving is going to be, let's say, 10 million uh, uh, of value, and therefore this business is, is uh, you're going to pay 10 million more for it. So now that the tax cut, in a sense, is in place. It's not clear it benefits directly to private equity. It benefits probably a lot to the seller as well. Um, so that's, and, and, and importantly, it's not just private equity who benefits from that. Any company benefits from this tax deductibility. And, and, and you have all the reasons in the world to think that not only they are weird, but, 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 but uh, uh, they are also potentially quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, about the carried interest, um, so to go back to the example where you bury by this building in, in New York City, the way it works is that they manage to structure that 
as if you receive some free equity basically in the building at the, at, at the beginning. So the deal would be something like, I, the, the pension fund gives you 50 million, the bank gave you 50 million, but it's you, Barry, who's gonna do all the work. And so for that, we're gonna give you 10% of the equity for free. Because, well, it's not for free, it's because you're gonna do all this work. Yeah. And so then when we sell the building, then you have 10% of the equity. So you go to the tax guy and say, look, that's a capital gain because that's equity, and I'm just selling here some equity. So I should be taxed at 15 or 20% because that's a capital gain. Um, and so that's, that's quite controversial. Um, I find it hard to accept that argument. Uh, recently, Sweden is the first Yeah, they, they, they just have that, ruled out this, this tax treatment. But about every other country accepts that this is a capital gain. And yeah, that's a, that's a very effective way to, to lower your tax bill quite a lot. If you transfer everything you earn as a capital gain on some shares, then yeah, then you, you don't pay much taxes. So this one, I agree, is, I find it a bit dodgy. Um, now, Ludo, I have a question for you, and this is one of the things which uh, I've been researching. This is the, uh, the use of dividend recapitalizations. Um, and uh, I want you to explain. I know what they were, but uh, they're huge. And um, uh, but what I'm seeing is a lot of these companies are over. They're leveraging them to the hilt, and and lots of these companies go into bankruptcy. Or you call it in the UK, you call it administration, right? That's what you call it, ban- bankruptcy in the UK, right? Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. And and um, I I just find it incredible in that um, I guess there was one company. Uh, Phones for You, which is which is which is a big mobile phone company in the UK. I think it was owned by Providence Equity Partners or uh, one of those, and they did a big dividend recapitalization, and then they went into administration, and and sometimes the, uh, or you know, just get, give us a couple examples, or, or like Gala Corral. I mean, that was a huge uh, casino company, and done by Sivan and Candover and Premier, uh, and they went into administration. Isn't, yeah. isn't this a problem? I mean, I mean, all this over leverage. I mean, I'm just yeah. So there is about one business in ten that goes into administration or into bankruptcy. Um, so you could say that's a, that's a problem. Uh, the the industry would reply, look, it's first not that much, and and two, it technically the fact that business goes into bankruptcy in itself shouldn't be really a big deal. The problem is, is, is a lot maybe because of the bankruptcy laws of their nature or the way they are designed, because in a sense, the fact that the equity holder cannot suddenly pay the debt that they have taken on the business, then you could simply say, okay, then the equity holder loses their shares of the business, and then now the business belongs to the debt holder. Yeah. And the business can continue as a going concern. So there is nothing wrong with the business, and the problem is just coming from the impossibility to repay the debt, then it's what we would call a pure financial bankruptcy. There is nothing economic about this bankruptcy. There is nothing fundamental about this bankruptcy. It's a pure financial bankruptcy. It's just the business is fine, but you cannot repay the debt. So people say, see, in these cases, this is just the fault of private equity guys, because it's because of the debt that the business cannot continue or is bankrupt. But if it was really only a problem of the debt, then you just shift the, the, the assets to the debt holder, and then that's it, end of story. So the equity guy has lost, he had taken on too much debt, and now the debt holder runs the business. Now, it doesn't happen like that. And again, you could say, well, then it's because the, the bankruptcy procedure is not very well designed. So that's one observation. Um, on, particularly on dividend recap, it's true that these are like the examples that stick the most to people's mind, because what happens in a dividend recap is that 
you say, we go back to the example of a building. So you borrowed 50 million for this building. I gave you 50 million. The building is worth 100. And you start renting it out and it's working very well for you. So let's say you get 10 million of rent every year and you have started to repay the debt. So after two years, let's say you have managed to repay half of the debt. Then you say, okay, then I'm going to do a dividend recap. I'm going to ask the bank to give me an over 25 or maybe even 30 because I'm doing so well. And then I'm going to pay myself a dividend of this amount. And then if the company goes bankrupt, then you have always a lawsuit because the, the, the people will say, look, it, you borrowed more and then now you're bankrupt. So it, you, you're the cause of it. But there as well, the lenders are not supposed to be stupid. So in the case of funds for you, if people have agreed to lend to the private equity guys $2 billion for, for a dividend, then it means that at the time, there was no way to foresee that there was going to be a major problem with the business. So one could think that the private equity guys did it in good faith. Now, it's true that it seems a bit odd that then six months later, one of the contracts, they had only two big clients. One of them didn't renew. And six months later, then they just declared bankruptcy. They couldn't repay uh, uh, the, the, the loan. And then it's a bit shocking indeed because the private equity guys receive a dividend of like a couple of billion and there is all this debt on the company. And then that said, the company has to liquidate and, 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 and the debt holders are not fully repaid and the private equity guys still got one billion. So that's why this case is like, and there are many of them, stay in people's mind where the private equity guys have managed to get some cash out of the business by re-leveraging and then if it goes bankrupt, it's not always the case. If it goes bankrupt, then people say, well, not only uh, you brought this business bankrupt by taking on more debt, but on top of that, you made money um, on, that, on that deal. Um, so yeah, so then these, these, these cases are, 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 are polemical. Again, the lenders, it, they, they're supposed to see this coming. If it was really in bad faith that they are borrowing more to pay a dividend because they think the business is going to go bankrupt, then the lenders should never lend. So, so there is maybe some work there to do for, for, for more better rules, uh, a better, more efficient bankruptcy procedure. But again, particularly is capitalism on steroids. So they, they play with the rules. The, the rules are what they are, and they are there to make as much money as possible. So if bankruptcy procedures let them get away with it, then they, they will just do it. Yeah. So this is, this is how they work, yeah. Yes. So, you know, so, yes, yeah, so Ludo, yes, this is the whole thing. So, and it's, it's a very private club. I mean, I think uh, between the four largest private equity firms like Apollo and Carlisle and um, KKR and Blackstone, I mean, they employ, you know, they're, through their portfolio companies, Ludo, they employ, you know, maybe three, four million people. But I think maybe the, together the management of all these companies maybe only have seven or eight thousand people am i correct so it's a very kind of a select business i mean and some of these guys are getting some of the wealthiest guys in the world am i correct i mean they have a tremendous yeah, that's correct so the deal in private equity when when you're an executive of such a company so indeed you, you're right so the, the number of employees that are basically under the control of blackstone and kkr and so on is about like nearly one million for each one of them so it's it's like a walmart for each one of them um and and the executives of these companies are very highly incentivized to get as much cash out of the business as possible. So everybody has the same obsession. So, and, and the kind of deals they, they, they get is, is really 
on an order of magnitude uh, bigger than publicly listed uh, executives, or executives of listed companies. So to give some numbers, a private equity executive um, getting this, this building, like, like I gave earlier, like so you, Barry, appoint an executive, uh, Mike, to run that building, and the deal is, in four years' time, we need to sell it for as much as possible. And let's say that Mike doubles the value of the building over four years, um, which would be about in the average plus of, of, of uh, across deals. Then Mike would walk away with a package worth like $100 million. Like that wouldn't be shocking. That would be like the, the kind of number that, that executives of large companies owned by private equity firms would, would receive. So indeed, a lot of very rich executives made their money by, by running companies owned by private equity and, 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 and exiting successfully. So private equity signs very large checks to executives, very large checks to accountants and lawyers, etc. But it's always, if you bring me a lot of money, I give you tons and I don't care how much I need to give you if you give me a lot of money. So we see like, yeah, extraordinary numbers there. The, the executives of private equity funds earn tons of money out of these 700 basis points of fees. The executives of portfolio companies earn extraordinary amounts of money. Um, again, like a $100 million package over a four-year period for private equity executives is, is not something that extraordinary. No. I mean, Schwartzman alone, I think, made, was it 2017 or 16? I forget which year. Steve Schwartzman ran Blackstone. He made like $800 million. Uh, is that, Ludo, does that sound about correct? Something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. His salary, however, is, is I don't know if you know his salary, but his salary is $300,000. So his salary is $300,000. That's where he pays 50% taxes. And all the rest is, is dividends and capital gains. So <laughs> I, I, I'd like to have a job like that. Uh, I'm surprised you're not in the business, Ludo. Um, but there's a there's a problem. I mean, this is you know I'm just trying to balance it in my mind because I'm I'm a small business person and if I um, if I put my company into administration or bankruptcy, if you will, it would is I get dragged into it and 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 it and it hurts everybody. Okay, and because anyone anytime Ludo, if you have a if I don't know if you're single or married, but if anytime a a person has too much debt or a family has too much debt or a business has too much debt in a net or a country for that matter, I inevitably ends up in, as a problem. And, um, but you know, on, on the private equity side, because they're so different, different distance, um, uh, lots of times they go, they go bankrupt and, and, the, and, and the, and the, the, uh, they, I guess they call it uh, the pension protection plan in, in the UK, or they call it the pension benefit guarantee corporation uh, in the U.S., ends up pulling the the pension obligations for the for the portfolio companies. Uh, what do you say about that, Ludo? Yeah, so so it, it is they are playing with the rules, and so and these people are you know they just want to make as much money as possible, and then, and, and 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 they play it to, to 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 the bone. So then, in many situations, very shocking. So two days ago, there was an article in the in the Washington Post about a, a company run by Warburg Pincus. Uh, that does uh, um, lending to poor people. And oh. so what they do is that they send these checks to people, like $1,000, $2,000, and they say, all you need to do is just sign this check and the money is yours. And uh, there is a small print somewhere that says uh, you're going to pay 33% interest rate a year for this. Um, obviously, if you pay 33% interest rate on, on, on any kind of loan, it, it, you will quickly, any one of us, end up in, in highly uh, fi- financial distress. Um, 
and and especially if you're financially vulnerable and you take up this money, then that's it. It's it's it, it's short short financial death. Um, and and they were showing examples of of people who got into that trap and. And the, the company just says, look, this is all legal, okay? These people, we don't force them to take these loans, and and and, and that's it, that's life. Um, so so yeah, it, it, you know, they, they they play with the rules, and I think there is a lot of ways to indeed improve the rules. The bankruptcy procedure should be uh, uh, made better. You have all kinds of problems in the U.S. with like big big uh, donations to politicians that can also influence the way that that laws are designed. And so, if people who make a lot of money can then you know finance some politicians, that can also create some distortions. So there are all kinds of distortions. The, the laws are far from perfect. I think it's it, it's better now that that they have a cap on the amount of debt because you are right that this is always where the problems come from, the over leveraging, and and it's good that it is at six times earnings. But even that, maybe you know, could be could be fine-tuned a, a bit more and, and 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 more restricted. But I think the bankruptcy procedure, in particular, would would require a lot more attention and 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 a lot more work uh, because this is where a lot of weird things happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, because Ludo, I don't know. I mean, you're in the UK, okay, and I I I work with a lot of financial advisors or whatever, and most people. Uh, this is, I mean, to me, it's a really serious problem, and, and, and most people don't really realize it. I mean, how, how is it in the U.K. to average people understand how the mechanics of this stuff work, Ludo? No, but, but, but the U.S. is already way advanced <laughs> in, in terms of even general knowledge. So it's indeed, and that's why I wrote this book, that the, people's life are highly influenced by private equity, and and. And sometimes they can see it, and sometimes they don't know it. And it's very hard to understand the jargon, like all kinds of things. It's very puzzling how this works. And, and so that's why I tried to write this book with like putting it in a way that, that, that a lay person could understand. But still, even to go through the entire entirety of a book, you would need to know a bit of finance. But you could get at least the basics, I think, with, with a basic knowledge of finance. And in the US, people at least a number of people, if you say private equity, they know what it is. They, they would say Blackstone, Carlyle. They, they, they would know at least private equity, what, what it, some names of uh, the basics. In the UK as well, a bit less than in the US, but you would have a number of people that, that know that. Outside of these two countries, people have zero idea. Really? So in France, for example, uh, the media, at one point there was an example of a, a private equity firm who bought a company, uh, uh, like it was a family business in the south of France, and the guy had built a business over his entire life. He started from zero. He had grew this, this it was a shoe manufacturing uh, in his hometown. And then he had, when he retired at 70, sold to a private equity firm, and this, this, there was like 500 people working for that factory, so he was very proud of, of that. And one of the first things the private equity guys did was to just shut down this factory and then move the production to, to Morocco. And, and the guy just like couldn't believe this, and, and, and it, he was devastated, and he committed suicide. So the media covered that, and, and then they said, and because they couldn't say the word private equity or any equivalent, because nobody would know what they are talking about, they just said some American pension funds bought this company, and they moved the, the jobs to Morocco, and everybody was like, oh, bloody American pension funds, you know? And yeah. it, it had nothing to do with American pension funds. I mean. Some of them had the money, some of their money in the fund, but that's not them who took the decision or anything like that. So 
this is just an anecdote to show like how it is impossible even outside of the US and UK to even save a world private equity because people would really have no idea what you're talking about. So at least in the US, some people know roughly what you're talking about. They have seen or heard of barbarians at the gate. They, they have some ideas. Um, so it's not enough, but, but the US is way ahead in terms of general awareness of the public of finance in general and private equity in particular. Well, Lido, it's, we're coming to the end of our show. We, we can't thank you enough uh, for shining light on this because, uh, to me, it's just uh, it's a private club and most of us aren't in this and won't be in it, but uh, it's a uh, very lucrative one. And um, uh, in, any, in any event, um, how can people find out, how can find out, people find out more about you by going to www.pelaidbear.com? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that website would have everything in there. They would have a bio, they would have some resources to understand private equity. I've put a lot of free material there to go beyond what the book covers. There are some slides that people can see, like in a summary of all the chapters of the book this way, etc. So I would guess that's the best resource, yeah, plaidbear.com. Um, or they can just Google my name, Ludovic Falipu, and, and, and they will quickly uh, end up on, on, on a bunch of material. Yeah, and Ludo, and thank you also for cracking the whole uh, the uh, Yale uh, thing. I, thank you. You're a brave man. I was just, uh, I, you know, because I was, because I, I, a number of people, uh, and I, when I read your book, I said, oh my goodness, I got to get this guy in the show. But uh, Ludo, thank you so much. And I'll send you one of my books. And um, God bless you. And uh, keep uh, pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for, for, for helping people to, 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 uh, to, to know more. It's very important, and I look forward to read your book. All right. Thank you. God bless. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke, broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio, engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show, or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Hey.